start this morning by encouraging each of you. We try to provide the passage for the coming week. I encourage you to engage in that. If you got time to take a look at this, if you have read through this story perhaps in your devotions before, or you caught up to it this week, you probably, like I did, you have a number of questions. And I will apologize now if this seems a little bit uh, scattered. Uh, There are a lot of things to get to, and I have prayed that the Lord would help the the most important to come out this morning and to come through. I want us to start off thinking to ourselves, how could they? How could they? You ever get flabbergasted? You ever get bewildered? Like, how could that have happened? How could they do that? So I typed in flabbergasted. And I did an image search, and I found this picture. I have no idea who these people are. Uh, They posted their picture on the internet, and it came up under flabbergasted, and I said, well, you're going to be in my sermon. (laughs) Uh, So these people, I have no idea who they are or where where that picture was taken, but I typed in flabbergasted, and that's what I got. So that's for your benefit this morning somehow, right? All right, so scratch uh, your head and say flabbergasted and say, how could they? And here's something else that's pretty shallow. Uh, We're going to start shallow and get deeper. I I don't like it sometimes when people take a good thing and they mess with it. And so how could they put berries in Lucky Charms? Are you serious? At some point, your imagination needs to stop. This is not good. The original is well enough. Leave it alone. How could they do something like this? Is this really necessary? My opinion, we can debate later. It's not that important. Don't get stuck on it the rest of the time. Something a little bit more serious. You ever wonder, how could somebody who's innocent end up in prison? You ever wonder that? How could they do that? How could they get it so wrong that it gets to the point where someone is actually on death row and then they are exonerated? How, how could they do that? You get flabbergasted, you get bewildered, and maybe you have a different set of questions that you would use to, to intro uh, this, uh, this first point here. But maybe you feel like it's Abraham, and he, is it sin again? Sin again? This guy has had God directly communicate with him. He has given him some of the greatest promises that we can find in the Bible that not only have to do with him and his own people, but all nations, ESV says, all families on earth, all peoples will be blessed through him. Yet a second time and a a third time we see God affirm and reaffirm this covenant that he has made with Abraham, but yet we continue to see him stumble. And we're going to spend part of our time this morning wrestling with this concept of being flabbergasted, how does this happen? You may have followed some of the the recent stories over the last year or two. Some of them have made national news. Certainly, if you read Christian publications, there have been notable instances where pastors, well-known pastors and, and speakers and authors who have benefited thousands, if not millions of people, have, have taken these falls and have, had, and have covered up these patterns. Of, and you just you get bewildered and you think, how could they? What? what? And I, that's the way I feel. I try to engage with this and I just, there's times I don't understand. And so if you're sitting here this morning and 
and you know that we're, we're headed toward Genesis 22, and, and yet we're so close, and we've seen God interact with Abraham in such a, an intimate and a personal way, and you struggle with this, how could they? Then I want to say to you this morning, welcome. It's okay to ask these questions. It's good for us to ask these questions and to wrestle with this. And so at the end today, in our last point, we're going to get into some of the specifics. But while we're here, and, and while this story is on the page, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the unfortunate reality of sin. So if you're flabbergasted in that sense and asking that question, yes, it is true it is sin. Again, I want to ask you today, would you pay extra attention if you have dealt in your life with repetitive sin or somebody else's repetitive sin has affected you? Maybe you live or you work closely with someone who has a, a repetitive sin or something that keeps coming up. Maybe you know, and here's another thing on the page, Abraham is a great man of God. He's not a pastor of a church like we understand a spiritual leader today, but he is one of the most well-known people, not in the Bible, only in the Bible, but throughout all of history. Abraham is one of the most prominent people. Maybe you know a, a, a spiritual leader, a Christian figure who has sinned, and you struggle with that. And so what I want to do today is to, to help us think through how this happens. This here in Exodus 20, uh, by math contained in Genesis, is 25 years after the incident in chapter 12, where Abraham did the same thing with Pharaoh. He passed off his wife, uh, Sarai at that time, before her name had changed to Sarah, passed her off uh, as a sister, uh, we saw that God intervened in that and prevented uh, anything from happening between the Pharaoh and Sarah. And we see the same thing happen again. But here, 25 years later, and even in this passage, Abraham said, wherever we have gone, this is, this is what we do. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Abraham, sinning. We'll take a look in a minute at some of the specific things that are on this page, but this is 25 years. This gives us the idea that this is going on. Now, uh, listen, I'm, uh, Abraham lived a long time. Uh, he, he lived close to 200 years. And so, uh, this is something like an eighth of his life. A long time this, is, this has been going on. And so, what I want to do, I hope that one of the results today, is that, that we as a people of God, understand the reality that even people we look to for spiritual example and spiritual leadership have the tendency and the ability to sin. If we, as a, a people who follow Jesus Christ, elevate any particular leader to the point where we think they are above sin, we have done that person a disservice. It is not helpful, and it is one of the things that this passage helps us to understand. Actually, when we elevate 
people in spiritual leadership to that place where no one holds them accountable, no one talks to them about their sin, no one is working with them through it or praying with them, it's actually easier for them to hide these patterns of things that we have, types of situations that we've seen unfold with some well-known leaders. And so I don't, uh, I'll, I'll be cautious on the other side, I'm not trying to excuse anyone's sin, or their failures, I don't think God in any way uh, does that with Abraham. But what happens here is that God is the one who is exalted and will return to that. So if we were flabbergasted this morning, what? Again? Sin? Again? Yes. Sin? Again, I want you to be familiar with the way the New Testament is written. I'm going to give you just a few examples. These are going to be uh, spitfire, kind of right at you. If you're a note taker, come back. And uh, most of these are even in passages that address this. Uh, look here in James 4, quarrels, fights among you. Your passions are a war uh, within you. 1 Corinthians 5, sexual immorality among you. The church of Corinth and a kind not tolerated even among pagans. Later on, 10, 11, and 12, he's, he's talking about the examples of the Old, uh, the Old Testament. They're there for our instruction. Anybody who thinks that he stands, take heed, lest he fall. And then in verse 17 of 11, look in the following instructions, I don't commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. And so here's Paul's tone. You see some of it in James's tone. You see it in other types of letters. These are written to believers who have sinned in their church, and Paul is writing to them to, to not diminish it and to say this isn't happening, but to say here is how to confront it and here is what you should do in order to correct it. So we, we, we really need to work to avoid to build up some world where we're never going to be hurt by somebody in the church. Instead, what we see more of in Scripture and throughout the encouragement of the Bible is that we see a world where God works in and through us collectively and even in and through leaders who remain humble in spite of their failures. Now, as we talked about leaders uh, being down here this morning, leaders never get a free pass. Uh, they are held to higher ex, uh, uh, expectations. Uh, they're not above questions. Shouldn't be. Should be able to be called out and to recognize sin. And should be always challenged to respond rightly when they have caused hurt. I think those are, are things that we want to track as we see Abraham uh, being confronted here with this sin. And so what do we see in him is we see a picture of an incomplete man. And again, someone so prominent. Here's, here's what I found uh, about him. Genesis 24.1 says, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. I really wrestle with statements like that. I'm like, well, did God forget about the thing in 20 and in 12 and the other mistakes this guy made? And, and so here's this, this overarching statement that talks about um, Abraham at the end of his life where, where clearly uh, there ha- has been more blessing and more of God's work. And, and that should encourage us. But at this point in the outline of his life, at this point in the arc of the story, let's understand some things that Abraham is still willing to do. Abraham, at this point, was willing to put his wife at risk. 
Let me encourage you this morning from God's Word that real men don't put women at risk in the way they treat them, in the way they're viewed sexually, in security, in relationship. All of these things are in view in Abraham's repeated 25-year treatment of his wife. Now, you and I don't live in a country where women are treated as political uh, pawns or tokens or as um, a sexual pawn or token by a leader. This isn't, none of this is comfortable to say, but it was a part of their culture. It's why Sarah ended up staying with Abimelech. And so there's a very real sense of this is what happened with them culturally, and we don't live in that type of culture where in a formal way that that happens. Now, of course, there's all kinds of mess and all kinds of sin within politics. That's a whole other story for another day, but this was formal and accepted uh, among rulers. But what Abraham does in this is he doesn't only put his wife at risk, he puts Abimelech in danger. There's a very real sense uh, that his life, the, fa- the life of his family, and perhaps his administration could have been in danger uh, had things gone wrong between him and Sarah. Well, he was willing to do that. And so if you met somebody like this, uh, reckless in their action, uh, not certain, uh, not protecting of their wife and relationship, you're, well, how are you going to relate to this person? You're going to have a hard time trusting them. And we, say, we might say, yes, we're really looking for how God is going to address this and work in this. Well, Abraham's incomplete. He doesn't have it all together. Look at the excuses that he makes. Verse 11. Abraham says, well, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they'll kill me because of my wife. Who's the one who should have feared God? Verse 12. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So he's kind of hiding behind this family connection that he has to his wife and he's not elevating that relationship to everything that it is. He's, he's treading here. And well, it's technically kind of true that maybe... Eh. And in verse 13, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place, there's that reminder. It's a long time agreement they had, this over and over Abraham was willing to do this and he had brought his wife into this scheme. Ultimately, friends, it's a fear. It's a fear that God wouldn't protect him and wouldn't protect his wife without this scheme. (laughs) And so they have an unbeliever then who's upset with them and begins to uh, challenge them with questions. Abimelech, what does he do? He confronts Abraham in his incomplete obedience incomplete development. Uh, He should have been responsible for his marriage. And what happens? Abimelech, the unbeliever, he outgives Abraham. Remember Abraham when he came back from the war and he had rescued Lot and uh, the king of Salem comes out and says, hey, uh, I'll give you all this. You can have all this stuff. And Abraham says, no, I don't want it. And he was above that. And he made the, the right moral move. Well, here... He ends up taking the gift because he's in such a place of humility and incompleteness and we see the unbeliever outgive Abraham. He's incomplete. He still needs God's grace. 
have this chart up here. I used this earlier in the Genesis series. We'll return to it at least once more before we, we end this series. But Abraham had a number of different tests before him. And as you see there on the right, it, it doesn't look like he just passed them all with flying colors. Does it? Like, three out of seven is good in baseball. <laughs> but this is Abraham's track record of, of obedience. And my goal today is not to smear Abraham. It's for us to wrestle with our incompleteness before God, with people in our lives and their incompleteness before God, without excusing sin, but with an understanding that God works His grace in us for His good. And so while this is a display of an incomplete man, it is also the display, and more importantly, it is a display of a complete God. Here's where we're going to go back and in, in, in get some of the details here as we end today. Did, let me ask you this. God, at this point, had made a promise to Abraham and his wife that what was going to happen in their old age, a hundred years old, at their old age, they were going to have a child. They had tried to take that promise into their own hands. Uh, we'll return to Hagar and Ishmael uh, in a couple of weeks. But, God had given him that promise. Does Abraham's action here threaten that promise? Unless God intervenes in this dream and talks to Abimelech, and he's had a, a night together with Sarah, then the question of who's the father of that child is always going to be present. God is complete. So in one sense, his, Abraham's actions were even, even enough to possibly cloud the promises of God. But in another sense, God's promises are God's promises. And we need to understand that human ability will not change whether those promises are kept or not. I want to zoom in on that interaction that God had with Abimelech. Right? God tells him, what? He's a, you're a dead man. Because of Abraham's wife, and Abimelech says, Wait a minute, I haven't done anything here. <laughs> and do you notice in the way the story is told, <laughs> do you notice what God says? Uh, back to verse 6. God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Here is God protecting the promises in his completeness. God is the one who intervened and made the, the damage and the extent that could have happened in Abraham's mistakes. He, he limited it. He prevented it. Has God ever helped to contain the possible chaos and the outcome of your sin? Do we see sometimes God's mercy when we sin, but yet God, God helps us to, to contain the, the potential fallout? Sometimes that happens, and this is a picture here of how God works. Abraham is so lowered 
God allows that in Abraham's character to exalt himself. This text screams at us, don't trust in Abraham. He is not the one who is going to be the child of the promise. It's not going to happen. He's not the Messiah. He's not the one in Genesis 3 that would come, the child. No, he's not. Don't trust in him. God is the one who is exalted. Here's something else that we really need to to take note of. God makes it clear that the woman is exonerated and is innocent. One of the patterns, uh, if you have followed some of the uh, falls, if you will, of Leaders, whether it be in our area or whether it be uh, across the nation, Christian leaders who have found themselves in scandal and difficulty, in, in several of these different instances, there are women who are present who are making the allegations, who are making the accusations, and oftentimes the pattern is for those leaders, they will say, ah, I'm not going to, I don't, we don't want God's reputation to be ruined, we don't want these allegations to be true, and so there's this pushback, and the women are blamed, and then sometimes even shamed to the point where they leave uh, the church, and sometimes their faith completely in total disgrace. When it would have been better to say, we will listen to you, we will investigate this, and if we get to the truth, we'll hold our leader accountable and call him to repentance. Here, the woman is exonerated. This is what real leadership would do, especially in their culture. Sarah is the weaker figure, especially, and Abraham was willing to risk her. And Abimelech is the one who, who God uses to, to make this very clear to the reader that she is the one who is, is lifted up here and the one who, who has the less power is, is shown, hey, you are innocent, and the one who has the more power is held accountable. And so a complete God, at the end, what does he do? He pushes Abraham back out on the limb of faith. I find this to be incredible. After he has had this awkward thing where uh, a, a thousand pieces of silver, just real quick, that's a lot of money in their day and age. That's not just a few days wages or anything. That's like a, an athletic contract. <laughs> okay? It's going to do you all right. You're going to be able to get what you want at the grocery store. Okay? You don't have to skimp. That's a lot of money. Um, but he goes through this awkward thing where Abimelech blesses him and he's humbled and he takes the money rather than get in another argument because he's been humbled. But even then God pushes back out and says, you, you be in that role. And he prays. God healed Abimelech. He uses Abraham. He healed his wife and the female slave so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs, verse 18, of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. We don't know all the details of that, but God, even at the end of this, brings this completion where Abraham receives mercy through an unbeliever and then, and then mercy from God as he's used yet again to be a part of something miraculous where God does a healing. God makes it clear here that he is the one who can keep the promise. 
want to remind you of Genesis 15. There's this really weird scene. If you're not familiar with this and haven't read this before, I'm going to encourage you to write down Genesis 15. Go back and read this, uh, where it gets really dark, and uh, what happens is a smoking fire pot, a flaming torch, passed between pieces of animals that Abraham had cut up and kind of put in an aisle. And generally, in making an agreement in their culture, two people would go through to show, hey, we are both in it and making this agreement. In this case, one goes through a smoking fire pot, a flaming torch, God. That is a representation of God, and He is the one who goes through to give this powerful imagery that He will be the one making and keeping the promises. Thank you very much. Now, if that seems a little bit uh, estranged from us in our culture and far out there, let's bring it right back into our need before God. Is there some way that we're going to impress God and and earn the forgiveness that we could get from Him through Jesus? God, in the same, very same way, says, No, I have sent my Son, and in this way, through His suffering and His death and His burial and His resurrection from the dead on the third day, all predicted and now come true, I will be the one who is making and keeping the promises. Thank you very much. It disarms us from our temptation to try to justify ourselves before God. The good news is that Jesus is the one who has done it. And he's done it for you and he's done it for me and he did it for Abraham. 25 years, a besetting, a deep-rooted sin that had to be dealt with before the child of promise would be born. I want to lead us in prayer today. Three prayer challenges. I want you to hear these. One, God is in charge of who will fear Him and obey Him. Abraham's, oh, there's no God in this place. Listen. Maybe you think somebody else is beyond God. Maybe you think you're beyond God. No, no, no. If God's in there working, He can rattle it around for anybody and bring them close to Jesus. Maybe that's for you today and you would commit to Christ today and realize the good news of Jesus and God's forgiveness really is for you. You can go to heaven not by your own merit, not by your own score on the test, but because Jesus died for you. That's a great thing we'll pray through. Another thing here is that extending grace, and certainly we see God extend grace to Abraham in a couple of ways, it doesn't mean that truth isn't confronted. Christians mess this up all the time. Oh, well, I'm just so sorry. And then we just move on because God is so gracious. No, no, no. You have to confront the truth. You have to say, this is what happened. And I'm really sorry for that. I understand the weight of these things, and I'm willing to deal with them with a cost. Forgiveness was bought with a cost, a bloody suffering death of Jesus on the cross. We can't mess that up by saying, oh well, uh, I guess I got caught in my sin, I'm sorry, God's really good, isn't he? Let's move on with a big smile on our face. No. So we, if we're extending grace, we're receiving grace, make sure that that's equally uh, balanced by our confrontation of the truth of our sin and, and what has happened. And finally, uh, knowing that exposing a long-time sin and uprooting a long-time sin can, can mean that powerful things lie ahead. 
the completion of this promise that God had given to Abraham and Sarah uh, is still yet ahead. And in dealing with this sin now, it prepares Abraham and Sarah and their relationship to grow to the point where this child is going to be birthed. And that is incredible. So if you are in some sin, I pray that God would remove it and uproot it in some way that great power would lie ahead. I'll pray that with you.